Let's pray. God, we thank you that you know what we're like and the situations of our lives. Thank you that you know about the messiness of our lives. Thank you for you know the list of things that we want to do and haven't yet done. We thank you that you know the complicated relationships that we're in. Thank you that you know the pains and the questions that we have and that you go on loving us. God, as we listen to your word, we pray that you'd give us your wisdom as we know what it means to follow you in our daily lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the epistle or letter of Peter, we've been looking at how Christians coped um, with being in a society in a time where Christians were threatening, threatened to conform with a value system that was in opposition to Christ, the Roman Empire. How would they live their lives in this challenging context? And yet we reflect that it's as challenging as life is. It goes on throwing up challenges as to how we live. And I want you to take a look at this of Patricia's story as she describes her world, particularly her working world, and what shapes her. She uses these words. Uh, there's a certain culture there. Um, there's a pre- pre- pressure to produce. Um, it's a very busy, she talked about her work being very busy. It's a way of life that these people take on. Um, she's doing it to make an impact on daily lives and to change people's lives in Uganda, where she comes from. Um, in the UK, she says, you live to work. And she talks about her parents who instilled in her a culture of giving. Just interesting, all those different ways in which we reflect on what shaped us and our views of the world. Now, she wasn't the first person to mention this. Um, Back in 1950, Richard Niebuhr was looking as a Christian theologian about how Christians should relate to the environment around them, how they should relate to culture. And he suggested several models that are helpful, and that's why we're considering them this morning. He said, sometimes Christians see themselves against the prevailing culture, completely can't accept as a Christian the way that things are. Loyalty to Christ means a rejection of society. When we were in Congo, we went out there and we found that folks were, Christians were not happy to use plants or herbs. And we were a bit confused as to why until they said, well, when the first missionaries came, they said they are to do with witchcraft. All the witch doctors use them, don't use them at all. They completely said no to that. The Amish live at an arm's length from the world. They intend to, so that they aren't polluted, corrupted by the way the world is. And yet, it's not possible, is it? I mean, we're in the world. We're always going to be engaged in the world. We can't escape culture. We can't escape sin. Um, And yet, the temptation for people who hold this position is that they divide the world into the material and the spiritual realm. Christ against culture. Christ of culture 
In this model, Jesus is the perfecter of our aspirations. Here there's no tension between the church and the world. The best the world offers, well, that's Christ, isn't it? You, know, you can see Christ in all the good things in our society. Here's Western liberal Christianity in all its reasonableness. In our creativity, in our invention, doesn't that speak of God's love? This side of his equation says that. People are attracted to Christianity because it is a, a harmony of the, and it relates well with the moral and religious philosophy of, of the current teachers. And yet the problem of this side of the equation is that we have let that culture shape Jesus. And Jesus is less than who he is. We only allow that culture to tell us who Jesus, we only affirm Jesus in the ways the culture already dictate to us. Christ against culture, Christ of culture. Obviously, being a theologian, he pops in a few more possibilities. Um, and as I said earlier, so if you want to speak more to Bridget about that, who's at college, she'll tell you about Christ and paradox, or Christ above culture. But the one I'm interested in is Christ the transformer of culture. Life is the way we've got it. It's it's just the way it is. But life does not contain God. God is the creator of life. Culture can be transformed in and to the glory of God through the grace of God. We work in a culture for its betterment because in some sense God had some hand in human creativity and it was good and can be good. There is sin in culture, but all is not lost. There is hope in Christ. Furthermore, as we look to defeat sin, we can't do that by escaping it or by fighting against it, but possibly by keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we might see a transformation of culture. So there's some, a model of how we relate to culture, the environment what's going on around us. But if we turn back to 1 Peter and remembering that the Christians there were, the followers of Jesus were facing suspicion, disdain. Unlike the books of Revelation and John, they were not apart. These Christians were still within their society of that time. And the emphasis that Peter makes is for Christians to be faithful witnesses in that setting. These Christians are looking in the face of a hostile Roman world, sometimes seen to be enemies of the state, sometimes atheists or subversive. But these Christians are exhorted by Peter to remain faithful. We have so much around us that encourages us to do things differently, to, with so many opportunities. Remain faithful, Peter says to his writers. Remain faithful to Christ. And so Christians, we are to live a transformed life. A life that is in the messiness of things. But always looking to be transformed by Christ's Holy Spirit. Peter says, live a purposeful life with humility and endurance. I wonder what list of things you'd put in there where where Peter lists orgies and... um, licentian, a whole lot of things that wasn't uncommon in Roman times. What would we put there for our culture in this age? And Peter says, 
Don't waste your time with things like that. Live purposefully and endure. Be faithful in your witness. If you remember back to the first week and we were talking about the first letter of Peter and George Muchero gave us that little phrase of being resident exiles is how we're to see our lives with regard to the culture and the world around us. Um, Diogenes, is that his name? Bridget? Diogenes has written this about our relationship as Christians with the world. Christians are to be distinguished from other men, neither by country. Think how you define yourself. Christians are defined neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular form of speech. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share all things with others, and yet endure all things as if they were foreigners. To sum up to what the soul is in the body, they, Christians, are in the world. The soul dwells in the body, and yet is not of the body. Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. I wonder, as we read that passage this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, what jumped out at you as regards our attitude, our orientation as Christians with the world? I wonder what it was that arrested you in your thinking. Verse 1 of our chapter says, arm yourself with the mind of Christ. But the word is, arm yourself to think about what it means to live in the context in which you find yourself. When we have, uh, we use the baptismal bucket out the front there, um, there comes a point where we sign people with the sign of the cross and we say, we say these words to them. Fight valiantly as a disciple of Christ against sin, the world, and the devil, and remain faithful to Christ to the end of your life. Fight valiantly as a disciple of Christ. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. In your thinking, work at it. What does it mean to be a Christian in this context? Awaken me, God, to see the decisions that I'm making about my life. The second thing that jumped out at me was the the requirement in verse 7 of self-discipline. It says, be alert in our translation. Beth, what does it say, be alert? It's slightly different. Be alert and of sober mind. And our translation translates this as, be self-disciplined in order that you can pray. That's why to be self-disciplined. In order that you can pray. It seemed remiss of me in this Olympic season not to mention the Olympics. It seemed like every day we go through something or something Olympics. Um, Training. Think of the amount of training that the Olympians have put in to get to their preparation for what they're doing. Victoria Pendleson said just recently that she hasn't had a boyfriend in three years because that would be too distracting for her event. She's not got time for that because she's focusing on training properly, having no distractions. Here is um, Christian Malcolm's pattern of life. Just thinking about patterns of life. Fairly rigid routines he's got. This comes from the Men's Health magazine, if you're interested, and he'll tell you 
why he eats certain things, it's to do with his body and his performance. A lot of detail. He's thought very much about this. And he lives a patterned life in order that he may live the way that he wants to. In order he may achieve his goal. Interesting stories for us as Christians as we think about living our lives. Be self-disciplined in order that you might pray is a translation that I like for this verse. Be self-disciplined. Again, the idea from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings us the gifts of peace and of joy and of patience and of self-discipline. Sometimes we're so much all over the place, we can't pray. Be self-disciplined. Live a patterned life in order that we might pray and hear God and know God in the midst of our lives. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Be self-disciplined in order that you can pray. Be hospitable to one another. And in this context, it wasn't simply that of sharing a meal, but of a place to stay. It was putting yourself in with the lot of others and saying, well, whatever happens, you are my brother, you're my sister. We'll share this together. What we've got is mine, is yours. That degree of sharing. We think as a church, or again, the importance that we saw yesterday of the coffee house as a, as a church, a place of welcome, our cafe, a place of welcome and of acceptance, of hospitality, of letting people be who they are, accepting them and loving them. So this leads to the fourth point, be a com- community of transformation. It was fantastic yesterday to see people over on the field in so many ways bringing their skills, their things, their stuff together that we as a church could run that cafe. Um, whether it be Mark Butler on his knees for how many hours, banging away with a with hammer. I, I don't want to mention people by name because so many of us contributed to what happens across there. But together to be a community of transformation. Someone has suggested that um, a community of transformation looks like this. You recognize where the little drawing comes from, don't you? It's the Good News Bible. Carrying one another's burdens, supporting one another on our journey, being a community of transformation. We in Canberra want to be a community of transformation. We want to live our lives by certain values and for that to be seen by others and to invite others into that. In a sense, then, we are creating a culture. If we go back to thinking about the word culture that we talked about earlier, we're looking to create a culture wherein people are loved and know the love of God. And people say, hey, those folks in Cameron Church, the way they do things. We hope that is because of God's love that transforms who we are and in our relationships altogether. I want to finish this week by having a story about cycling. As you know, I go off cycling as often as I can. Um, but the thing about cycling, whenever I get on my bike, it's always windy. I don't notice it beforehand, but I get on my bike and it's windy. Do you ever find this? And you head off to one place and you think, I can't wait to get back home, turn around, because I'll have the wind at my back then. And you know what happens? You turn around and the wind is still in your face. What's going on? It's the how fast we go in our lives. Sometimes we can confuse persecution and things from outside 
when in fact it's actually we are creating challenges by the way that we're living and the speed by which we're living. I challenged myself as I caught myself again this week challenging my six-year-old to hurry up on his way to school. Ooh, hold on, what's going on there? Hold on. Hurry up. Ooh, I didn't like that. And then I was cycling and somebody overtook me. I go on these roads where I don't find anybody and this person from nowhere suddenly overtook me. What? What's going on? You know, I wasn't dawdling. Well, I don't know. I was thinking about the wind and kind of like the struggle I was having with my bike. And then someone pinged past me. That was shocking. Who was this stranger? How dare he? But suddenly I was no longer a ro- alone on that road and thinking about the wind or, or was it my breathing or getting older. Suddenly there was a focus. There was a person ahead of me and just ahead of me. Jesus said, Jesus is the author and the pioneer of our faith, the one who we are invited to fix our eyes on and who sets the pace and the pattern for our lives. Because I found that once I had that person in front of me, I didn't try and catch him up, but I tried to stay at that pace. And my feelings of struggle and the wind fell away and I had a focus and a person to cycle behind. And I began cycling pretty well. I picked up my pace and I thought, yeah, this is great. This is great. The other image I have of us as a church is as cyclists. I would say this as a cyclist, wouldn't I? But as a pack of cyclists. You know the way that they take it in turns to be at the front and for the wind to buffet them. They take it in turns so that they can support each other. Helping each other to win the prize. To our lives be transformed. Supporting each other, encouraging each other. Sometimes we're good at when we've got problems. What about encouraging each other to be even better Christians? Even better at what we're doing for God's glory. That's what Peter says in that chapter. So that all things may give God the glory. And this analogy of us as a church as a cycling pack is maybe a more dynamic one than one of us carrying each other's burdens from the good news. I don't know which strikes you better. But then let us think about living a transformed life. Letting God's Holy Spirit transform us in our relationships and in ourselves. I do believe that we as Christians transform culture. Not overnight. Not easily. Not without pain or without cost. It involves endurance and patterned living. But in the power of God's Spirit, we can be part of a transforming community. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gifts and the personalities you've given each one of us. God, would you rub us down at times when we've got points that need attention, that you would comfort us, that you would energize us, whatever it is, Lord, may you help us work that out in our togetherness as your people. And may to you be the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.